and welcome to episode 57 of the Home Lab Show, Q&A time. The uh, questions and answers have been kind of fun. We actually really like these episodes, and we had a goal yep. of doing them once a month. And there's enough questions coming from the audience and people filling out the feedback form that once a month is uh, absolutely achievable to make show. <laughs> it is, and it's even more achievable if you continue to send your questions in because we love to read them and go over them. Yeah, I think these are great options to stay connected with um, the audience on things and, uh, you know, toss around some ideas and live show uh, ideas. As a matter of fact, one of the things, and I didn't even mention this to Jay, so he's going to learn about it right now. The uh, I actually had someone who works at or works on the Net Data Project, which is an open source um, monitoring, uh, reporting, not monitoring, reporting system and some of the new features. So I'll probably be doing an updated video, but it might be, if, if there's enough content, um, talking about monitoring systems might be something or things that can graph performance of systems and how to do benchmarking and performance and how to monitor your workloads uh, might be for a good episode. So there's the, there's the queuing for, you should ask more questions of us of how you want us to approach that topic. So... <laughs> Me and Jay will have plenty to say, and we'll probably come up with a topic uh, and talk about it, whether you ask questions or not. But hey, we love when we ask, get the Q&A session, so we make sure that we're covering the topic in a way that you can understand it or make sure we're answering questions you may have about topics like that. But before we dive into these Q&A topics, we do have to thank a sponsor of the show, and that is Linode, which Linode's been sponsoring the show for quite a while. It is the place, if you have downloaded this from the podcast, and by the way, yes, we're doing a better job. We've hired, uh, I've got more people involved now to help keep the production happening faster because those of you that are listening to us on podcast may know um, there was a delay by about seven days to get some things out. Um, but we're working to do this. This is a challenge sometimes is putting the teams together to make sure these uh, things go from the time you're hearing it live. Not all podcasts, by the way, uh, you realize the delay time, but nonetheless, Back to Linode. If you downloaded it, you downloaded this from Linode. They've been a great sponsor. The host, they host all the infrastructure. Jay maintains all the infrastructure. The infrastructure had nothing to do with the problems while the podcast is delayed, is what I was going for before I started rambling a bit. But nonetheless, the mm -hmm. uh, servers have, have wonderful uptime. And actually, they've been pretty public now about their partnership with Akamai, which only adds more features to Linode. It makes it a more compelling option to tie in all load balancers in case your project gets a little bigger. But if you're starting out with Linode, we have an offer code offer code that you can use to go ahead and get started with them. And that offer code is head over to linode.com slash homelabshow, and it'll get you started. You just signed up and let them know that you appreciate their sponsorship of this podcast. So thanks, Linode, for sponsoring, and thanks all of you for listening. All yeah, right. And did you know we actually have another sponsor today? Oh, we do? Reed? Yeah, we absolutely have another sponsor today, oh. and it's actually me. <laughs> So I just wanted to let everybody know that the writing process is very close to wrapping on the fourth edition of Mastering Ubuntu Server, which I don't, I, I, it might be out by July. I don't have an exact date yet, but it's up for pre-order right now. So I just wanted to let everybody know the fourth yes. edition is coming. You could pre-order it. So just check out uh, the packed publishing website or even Amazon or yeah. whatever you prefer. LearnLinux.tv, you'll find the link to it. Always start there. <laughs> yeah. And this is the one, this is the one um, time where I don't have a link on there, but by the time, you know, this podcast circulates, I'll actually just add it right after this. Podcast. Yeah. Well, you can get the previous it. versions on there, but Jay will get it up to yeah. date. Uh, that is, that is your source for all things Jay is doing. It starts at learnlinux.tv, just like how mine starts at lawrencesystems.com. So, 
Yep. And I'm also, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm also going, I'm creating a special, you know, standalone website or web page for the book as well. I'm, I just wanted an excuse to write in Hugo. So if it goes well, then I, I might even uh, do, we might be able to do an episode on Hugo, which would be a really cool thing when it comes to, you know, developing websites internally. But yeah, if you guys are interested, just check it out. It's up for pre-order right now. The final release date is pending, but I'm about to submit the final chapters this week. Then it's going to go through the editing process, and it'll be ready. Absolutely. So there you go. We got our two sponsors out of the way. Now we can start doing some Q&A. Let's do some Q&A. All right. What was the first question we have here? Um, I, I'm going to laugh because I'm going to read a question that we don't understand how it got here. I'm not sure if this is the place. That's all that's in the form. So... That that got us thinking. Like, is this just rhetorical? What, is this kind of like a philosophical the place thing? You think this is. <laughs> is there a place we should go? Is there some magical server we should SSH into? And it has like all the answers. Is it server forty two? We have to find server forty two because it has all the answers. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> we we just laughed when we seen that. We're just like, okay, uh, I don't know if this is the place either. <laughs> it, I don't I don't know. Um, someone right before that asked if uh, we wanted to or thought about doing an episode on server rooms and we've covered it like throughout the podcast. I mean, we covered every aspect, but I think it's a good idea though, because it would be nice. I think in my opinion, to have an episode to kind of, you know, just bring it back and, and just talk about the individual components, especially as a jumping on point for people that are new to the podcast that may not have had a chance yet to um, read or, or excuse me, listen to or watch the earlier episodes. So that might be something we'll consider doing. That sounds like a good idea to me. Yeah. The, um, Server room design, we can talk a little bit about like, you know, putting in the anti-static floor, putting in a proper split uh, unit in there for uh, HVAC, maybe securing the door. There's a lot we can talk about from some of the higher end standpoints. Um, and then you can extrapolate from there what may apply to your home lab. Because obviously, you know, we all strive to build the beautiful clean room data center with the, um, have you walked in the data centers where they have the sticky floors at the beginning? No. So it's, um, Instead of a mat, if you go into the really nice data centers, there's a rollout sticker is in place of where a floor mat is. And it's literally what I say. It's a sticky. It's like double-sided tape they put on the floor and your feet stick to it because it literally is supposed to pull any type of dust or anything off of your feet when you're first walking into those. So, yeah, if you go into some of the nice data centers, they got all kinds of cool things. Um, you know, double locks. Uh, what is that other one called? The man trap is what it's referred to as. A person right. trap or whatever you want to call it. But you can only let, there's like a room that is only one person at a time to get into the data center room. Uh, that way they can verify who's in there. There's usually a uh, really heavy glass that you can see the person in there. So when they go, all right, we're going to authorize this person to go. We authorize them to get this far with their badge, but then they're stuck in the man trap and you're staring at a bunch of people in the data center room. At least when I was at, I thought it was really clever how they did it. You have to stand there. I was waved to him like a goofball and then he hit the button and let me in the other side. I was not yeah. allowed to ever pull my phone out and any step. Once you step inside there, um, that's one of the reasons you don't see a ton of data centers. A lot of companies just really keep them pretty <laughs> tightly locked down, but I think it's probably worth talking about. Um, I'll even bring a mention to the flywheels that were there because I can say that they were there. I just can't take pictures of them. I don't know if you've ever seen a flywheel uh, battery backup system. I have not. They're really clever. They use a spinning flywheel in some data centers. Actually, one of the ones local here in Detroit uh, has them installed. They have two massive spinning flywheels. And what they do is instead of having lead acid batteries, uh, 
you have a spinning flywheel in there and the power maintains it. I forget how fast they spin. It's not incredibly fast because they're super heavy. So they don't need to spin fast, but it, the, the power is used to maintain the speed of the flywheel. And if the data center loses power, they actually, on the other side, the power output is converting the power back. So it takes the flywheel and this uh, centrifugal motion of it, the uh mass of spin the spinning mass itself to power a generator that powers temporarily until the main generators kick in now the reason we do this is because lead acid batteries are expensive um and not the most environmentally uh they can be dangerous because you can have leaks you can have acid leaks you can have a uh, load go on them and i've actually seen the aftermath of a data center that had an overload of those and it broke but yeah wow. angular momentum that's the word we're looking for thank you Thank you very much, AstroCat 3D, for that. But they yep. are using the momentum off of the uh, flywheel to do it. It's a really clever design, and they keep two of them because you can replace the bearings in them every six or seven years. It was a pretty, I think that's what the service maintenance was. It was a pretty long time, and lead-acid batteries only last less time than that. And bearings, turns out, are cheaper to replace than lead-acid batteries and hardly any environmental problems replacing bearings. So... Yeah, it's really cool. <clears throat> there's this, there's so many different things when it comes to data centers. I mean, I'm just waiting to hear about like a physical honeypot because I could picture it in my head where someone, you know, sneaks into a company and they think like they're doing the, the best job and they get into their server room and there's just a stack of servers that look like they're very important. And then a monitor attached in the KVM with Captain America coming up on the screen. So you want to hack our servers, huh? <laughs> in a video yeah. recording, that'd be hilarious. <laughs> but then again, you know, I could... You know, that I'm just devious. Don't do that because that could get you. Yeah. You don't want to, you know, physically trap anybody unless you're like, you know, really strong anyway. <laughs> yeah. Nonetheless. Yeah. There's some discussion um, we can probably put together on, da on a data center rooms. And like I said, we'll talk about the high level stuff because it's interesting. Uh, and then you can take from there and start extrapolating what maybe fits for your home lab and data center in something yeah. I'm trying to work on a longer term review on. Um, I actually switched two of our UPSs to the um, LiPo, or I'm oh, sorry, yeah, lithium, lithium ion. I think they're lithium ion or lithium ion polymer. Um, either way, I, I have the newer ones that are lithium-based uh, UPSs. Uh, they've worked really well. We've had them for um, a little while. I didn't want to just review them but out of the box. I wanted to see if they worked over time. I bought them like six months ago, I think. I think I bought them last year. So, um, yeah. And it's a good topic because I, I bring that up because someone in the chat mentioned about their, um, what do you call it? Their 3000 VA UPS exploded two days ago. Yeah. That so. scares me a lot. That's scary. And yeah. I have a couple of UPS. I mean, that'd be horrible. Like I'm just sitting here and then bam, what? So man, I'm literally looking right over there. You can't see it. There's a, there's a big UPS and a little server rack there. So hopefully that doesn't happen. But uh, yeah. yeah, sorry to hear that. Yeah, and uh, there's there's obviously risk with any of them. I'm actually kind of surprised how small the batteries are. This thermal runaway is obviously a problem with lithium. It can be, I should say. Um, but the companies, and these are APCs that I got. Uh, APCs, a very reputable brand. Uh, they, I've actually talked to other engineers. I was supposed to get some from another company. Um, their demand was so high. It's funny, they reached out to me like a week or two ago saying, hey, Tom, would you like to review our products? I'm like, I remember asking you that over a year ago and you couldn't get me their product for a year. Uh, but I, it's an engineer I was talking to at a completely different company. And I asked him about the safety concerns on it. And he actually said that they're, they've become uh, quite safe. So, Yeah, well, technically everything is safe until it's not. Just Everything's safe until it's not. Like there's not... <laughs> There's not enough. To, I mean, it's a it's a problem with any of them. 
uh, you're talking about you're storing a bunch of energy, releasing that energy at a rate um, faster than you normally would. Well, this is going to be risky at any uh, given moment. Yeah. It does include lead acid. They definitely can go wrong as well. So, so definitely anything like that can happen as much as we never want to talk about this or think about it. Because, you know, if you think about it, I mean, you might have servers running. You, you, you leave the house to go grab dinner or something, or maybe you have a life and you're actually going out and you come back and then something, you're hoping nothing exploded, but it's like, you don't always think to turn everything off. I, I, um, one time, this has happened a few times, actually, when I was doing help desk, different companies, but one of which I came in on a Monday and through the entire building, I smelled some weird odor. It was horrible. And I tracked down the odor to the computer lab. There's about 12 different computers in there. And the smell was coming from one of the power supplies. So obviously that's a problem. But then what's interesting, you have intake fans in each of the computers that are sucking in the odor. Um, you, it's, it was really hard to determine which computer it was that was producing the odor because everything in there smelled bad. And you don't think about that, but technology fails. So it's one of those things where um, thankfully everything seems to be more solid nowadays, but you know, you never have a problem until you do. And then you learn a lesson and you have a different problem. So um, not try to scare anybody, but you know, if you don't need to have it on, turn it off. It's probably the best way to handle it. Mm hmm. For sure. All right. Next question on the uh, list, because we're going to think an episode about that. We'll just we'll table yeah. it there. Now, squid filtering. Someone says, and this is always an aggravation. And Tom talked about using squid as a web proxy. And yes, I have. I've talked about why it's a real pain to manage as a web proxy and what it breaks. I've been kind of working slowly on a video. I've got a lot of notes together, but haven't got the video released on how hard it is and what challenges you face, I should say, when you're doing uh proxying and it says i'm curious what do you use why and why you prefer it to squid uh because i've said not to use it some videos on Tangle in the past uh so i'm not sure if you're using something else well here's the problem everything uses squid whether it's untangle whether it's cisco um pretty much all squid is the de facto thing the good and bad of it is the tooling that comes around it untangle's done a good job which by the way if you don't know untangle's not owned by arista uh there, so there's probably more changes that are going to be coming down the pipe. But ultimately, when, why their system works the way it does is they put a lot of engineering on it. Now, Squid itself is an open source project, but the engineering that goes around it that's embedded in all these other companies using it is usually not the open source. That's their sauce of managing it. It's also just a pain to manage. Doing man-in-the-middle certificates adds a level of complexity. There is no way around it. And the only way you can get in there and, and do full web filtering and proper URL filtering is to do man in the middle. And the solution we use is a commercial one and it's not necessarily uh, manageable by, it's not something I really recommend. Well, you can't really use it for a home lab because it has a minimum uh, sign up and pretty expensive. By the way, none of these web filtering things are free because there's the component of managing the web filtering is keeping lists of websites. Websites do not identify themselves uh, into categories. There's, of course, the big ones like, hey, Facebook and Twitter is easy to figure out. The All the other websites is much, much harder to figure out of what they are, um, what their category is. I mean, it's just a really challenging thing um, <clears throat> doing this. DNS filtering is usually what I recommend, especially for the home lab people. It's way less intrusive. 
it's going to be way easier to manage because you're just denying lookups of websites based on DNS. And because DNS queries provided you don't turn on the um, uh, HTTPS, the DNS over HTTPS, do you, yeah, think about those, get them, get them in order. DNS yeah. over HTTPS, which would bypass your local DNS server, you can force disable that. And that's another solution to, you know, forcing all the DNS traffic to one place and put some filtering on there. That's the better way to do it because you're not dealing with all the man in the middle problems and everything else. But it's unfortunately, um, if you really want the filtering, you absolutely can do squid. You can load those certificates on there. But as the person asking the question says, isn't it really cumbersome? Absolutely. It's cumbersome. And you'll find yourself putting a lot of blocks in, um, by, not blocks, but bypasses. I'm trying to remember the term they use. It's really strange uh, mm. in there. But it's basically, there's a bunch of language that's native to squid. They reuse words in a weird way. And I, it's in my notes because it's so strange the way they call it, but it's the way you bypass certain things inside of squid to say, if a site has the certificates pinned or not, banks um, don't like man in the middle. Google doesn't like man in the middle. So having those services on there, by the way, squid starts breaking things like the QIC protocol, which we enjoy the fact that when we're on many websites, such as Google is an easiest example of this. When you start typing, you notice how as you type in Google, it immediately starts giving you results. Well, that's all done over QIC, which is a UDP protocol that Squid can't handle. So you have that as a problem. I actually, I think there's probably a way to make it handle it, but it, it, it involves a lot more um, things that just break more things. It's really convoluted. So that's why we don't really yeah. recommend Squid. Uh, it's great for learning. I think because what this person undoubtedly has embarked upon is all the reading that comes with it and understanding how the protocols transfer and how HTTPS works. You get a great understanding of it by using squid because everything as it breaks and as you troubleshoot it, you get a deeper understanding of it. My understanding comes from, I've been running squid not really much anymore, but uh, this goes back to, and I don't know if Jay's ever heard of this Mandrake firewall, which I think later became smooth wall. We used to have a squid oh. proxy we ran in it. I mean, I've heard of Mandrake, but not their firewall. This was an early project. It was circa 2000. And we actually used it when I worked in corporate because it was um, based on the earliest versions and squid proxying things because we had a very limited fractional T1. And so you cache things. Caching isn't really much of a thing anymore here in uh, 2022. Most of the stuff doesn't lend itself to being cached easily because the web pages are so dynamic. People aren't usually requesting right. the same static content over and over. We've also, through things like QIC, became more efficient. So when you start putting in some of these filtering tools like QIC, you actually, in or, or filtering tools like Squid, you end up breaking things like QIC and in ultimately making the experience slower and worse for the user. So. That's why I don't really recommend Squid. It's a great learning experience. Uh, DNS filtering is still not a precise art, but definitely can get you further along the way. There are, and I don't know what consumer tools are out there. There are consumer tools you would load as an agent on this on each computer that would restrict um, in a more granular way. But obviously those all come with subscriptions and may or may not want those companies in there. And one of them, I can't remember which one it was, got in trouble for... Um, Collecting the data and selling it. And that was a while ago. I remember them being in the news. So I'm always, it, be very suspicious yeah. of there because you're intrusively letting something watch all of your browsing history on a system. And the way companies can monetize your data, um, 
I, I don't know. I'm skeptic and I wouldn't endorse any of them. We use a commercial right. product just so people know the name of it. It's in our list of software we use over on my forums, but the name of the software is called Zoros. You pay a healthy subscription fee to sign up to them and you have to have a minimum number of endpoints. I think it's like several, 100, 200, whatever it is. We're well beyond that. With uh, we manage, but That's how we manage it for our customers is with a tool. So there's kind of a long answer on web filtering. It's not easy and as the privacy of the web advances, especially as we go from SNI to ESNI or other encrypted uh, ways of transporting the name headers, um, it's going to get trickier unless you have an agent on the system. Yeah, so I would probably consider using um, Squid Proxy just as an excuse to have a server named Squidward because yes. why wouldn't you want that? Um, but in, in, in all seriousness, though, like one of the reactions I had to this question was that I realized that when we say we don't use something, it doesn't mean quite the same thing as when, you know, a lot of other people say the same thing because we are constantly creating like a bunch of content that takes a long time. And when it comes to home lab, you kind of get to a point where, you know, at first you have like a bunch of different services and applications running. You might have a PF blocker, squid, I almost said Squidward, <laughs> uh, Squid Proxy and a number of others. But then later on, you know, after you learn those things and you kind of look at everything and you're like, I have a hundred things to manage right now. Um, how many of these things do I actually need? Now, you know, if depending on how into home lab you are, you're probably okay with a bunch of things to manage. But, you know, if life ever, you know, you're really busy or something, you might not be able to keep up with that. But then, you know, for you and I, I mean, I, I mean, I'm writing a book right now, plus I'm creating content at the same time, among other things. And um, sometimes things just stay broken. And if something's going to stay broken and it doesn't really benefit me, then it might just have to go away. And right before we started recording, I was complaining that um, as of this week, PF Blocker has decided to block all of the um, links on Twitter. So I couldn't even click on the YouTube link to get to this particular um, live stream on my browser. Now, obviously, I can log in and fix it. It's not hard to fix. It's just another thing to fix. So then I asked myself, and you mentioned that um, you use uBlocker. Well, I'm using both technically in the browser. I have it and then PF Blocker. Do I really need PF Blocker? Not really. So I just turned it off because at that point, like, I just don't have time. So it's kind of one of those things where we love what we do. We love the hobby, but we don't always have the time to focus on this. So not using something doesn't really always mean that there's something wrong with it. It just means in the grand scheme of things, when our use case is considered, we might not be as feeling as strongly about running that service as we were when we first discovered it. And that changes over time. Yeah, it, it comes down to what you want to manage on it. Um, Yep. Yeah, everyone's like, it's all excited about the ad blocking and things like that. But you block origin. I really care more about blocking ads in the um, browser. Matter of fact, uh, it, it's one of those silly things. If you turn on PF blocker and you get really aggressive with ad blocking, um, you may have other people in your house uh, that complain that their game, they like their clicker game stops working because once the clicker game realizes the ads are blocked or something, you know, <laughs> they can't play it anymore. So you'll, you'll find that, sometimes it can backfire on you. I like doing it at the browser level with uBlock Origin. So one thing I've never understood about PF Blocker and that mentality is like, let's just say, you know, you, a family member, right? That, or, or someone that doesn't really know technology very well because it's not their thing. 
Um, they could have somebody in their family, maybe it's you, that manages their firewall for them. Maybe you were nice enough to set that up and get that going and they really love it. And then they go to a website and they get this message, you have an ad blocker, turn off your ad blocker. But at that, at that point, they won't know how to do that or even if they have one because you you know might have done that yourself or maybe they had someone else, they hired somebody to do this for them. Um, it's really hard to navigate because the website is detecting an ad blocker, but if you don't have an ad blocker in your browser, what do you do? So there's there's a whole new layer when it comes to that, especially considering the experience level, like other people in my house, like, why why isn't this website working? It's just like you said, right? They don't know. Yeah. Um, I know because I'm going to blame that as the first thing whenever they I see that white screen with no text, because every time that's what I end up seeing. So um, yep. there there has to be a better way to handle this. I'm sure we'll get to get to that but I'll be interested to see how this actually plays out. Hey, look, I'm just, so we went from pop-ups to pop-overs now. So there's I definitely been changes. So much. I know. And they, it's like, I could be reading an article for like five minutes and then it yeah. just pops up. It's like, I get anxious because I know at any time I could be interrupted and that thing comes up. Uh, the only way that I've found to deal with that, that has worked so far is to always turn on reading mode in your browser when you read an article. That strips mm. the UI and everything and just shows the text. Um, but I always forget to do that. So I still yeah. I still see those. But if you make it a habit to use the reading mode, as far as I know, that's the only way to block it because the way that they have those popover ads, it's as I understand it, really hard for anything to really tell the yeah, difference. They become part of the page. And, yeah. And they're, they're, I, unfortunately, uh, the trend I think is going to be to have more of those, not less of those in the future, which creates its own problem. And then if they're using same domain origin and embedding it that way, it also breaks the ability for things like PF Blocker because it's not a third party injected ads. It's part of those. So, yeah, the ad, the ad cat and mouse game will carry on until a better solution is found. Um, I even think I was just going to say one last thing about that. I one of my theories, is, which I'm not, I'm fifty fifty on this. It's a possible outcome. I'm kind of wondering if like they just keep this going and and make it more and more um, common. If they'll end up defeating the technology altogether, because for me personally, I've become really good at finding the X. I can't even tell you what any of these popover ads say. I I can't even tell you a single word on the page what the picture is. Um, I've become numb to flashing things like big photos, big text, flashing text. I look for that X and I just subconsciously hit the X. I can't even tell you how many other people are numb to it as well. So the more they make this common, I kind of wonder if the return on their investment of creating this is going to eventually just diminish to the point where it's no longer worth it. Yeah. Um, now, before we move to the next question, which is a good one regarding remotely accessing and monitoring systems for uh, like screen monitoring, uh, I'll make two PFSense comments. Someone asked about Wi-Fi cards and PFSense, and I, you can simply Google supported Wi-Fi cards and PFSense. Uh, there's a link I dropped in, in the chat, but it's easy enough to find for wireless hardware you can use with PFSense. It's documented from NetGate. They have a list of what cards they support, and you can also find a video on my channel about that topic using Wi-Fi with PFSense. It's not a wonderful solution. It's a solution. It might be fun for the home lab solution. Uh, I think it offers you some cool insight into how wireless works. It gives you some very granular options. Uh, so you're getting to configure it right inside of PFSense, but it's not the same as setting up like a half a dozen Wi-Fi access points around your house and creating a large 
a seamless network. So not really that. Second, backing up PFSense. I've got a video on that topic, but automated backups that don't go to PFSense's cloud, like they have their own cloud backup system. Um, there's not. There's probably some write-ups you can find on it. I've never really done a video on it because it's it's really no more complicated than just grabbing the config.xml file. That's all you need. So if you have something that can SSH in, doesn't matter what that something is, something that runs a script that SSHs in, like and grabs that file <clears throat> and you set up SSH okay. keys, that's all you need is the one config.xml file. The entirety of PFSense is in that file. And so if you watch any of the backup videos, this, I've never really done a video on it because it's it's literally just a bash script that says, SSH, grab this file and put it here on some schedule if you want. But you don't really need a schedule to back up your config XML. You really only need it backed up when you make changes. But then again, right. if maybe if you're a home lab person uh, or like me and Jay who play with things a lot, you might make changes a lot. And maybe an automated hourly backup is good for you too, because we don't know which hour you're going to make that change, but you may as well right. have all of them because it's a really tiny file. Um, and it's up to you how many versions back you even need to keep of that file. By the way, the file itself has the change history in it. So there's so I think some of the change history is in it, not all of it, but there's a backup folder underneath that does have more change history. So watch my backup video. I cover a lot of that. Plus it's also well documented. Uh, that file is documented in the NetGate documentation. Yep. And so another thing you could consider is just trying to make a make it a habit, which I, I'm cautious with this because we forget things easily because yeah. we're human. But if you're if you're making changes when your session is done before you close out that browser tab in pfsense back it up then you know what i'm saying cuz you, you you know in my case i could probably leave it for like several months and not even make a single change to it yep. and that's usually the case and then all the things i was thinking about changing in one session i'll spend like an hour just kind of going through and implementing everything um, and then you could back it up. I, I like that automatic backup solution yeah. that PFSense has where you have an encryption key that you keep and you need to keep it. You need because if you lose that encryption key, then right. your backup is useless. But if you have it have that key in a safe place, then it's just gonna keep updating um, as you make changes. My understanding is that nothing is personally identifiable. They can't even look at it. So um, as long as you have the encryption key, it's just gonna send the blob up to um is it is it netgate in this case that's yeah. on the receiving yep. end? Yep, NetGate set that up as a service. So I, I really recommend using it because, you know, why reinvent the wheel? It has an automatic option for backup on change. And if you do want to reinvent the wheel, go to the source code and redirect where that goes. You can always just modify the code um, yeah. to, to go somewhere else, um, you know, backup yeah. on change, but send it over here. Uh, but I'm we recommend a lot of people all the time because people, uh, sometimes when they've had a catastrophe, it isn't just their PF sense. If you have a, larger catastrophe in your lab of losing files cool as long as you didn't lose the backup password you can just load a new pf sense and pull the config all the way down from the last known good so i mean don't only rely on their backups have your own in case something goes wrong on their end as well because you know right. if they're doing it and they stop doing it um that would you know things can happen on their end they're people too uh and servers and things happen so uh it, always just have multiple ways to back it up set up the pf sense one so you have them uh try to remember to do it yourself and if you want to go as i said just use some type of script running on some type of automated cron job that just sshs in with the keys and say i'm going to grab this config.xml file every hour to make yourself happy away you go so if you're going to use the bash script um style uh, for something this important, I highly recommend healthchecks.io. Oh, and yeah. Put that in your bash script. 
And then you, if you think like you're going to make a change in your PF sends, let's just say on average every week, right? Um, put this schedule for every week such that it'll alert you if healthchecks.io doesn't receive a ping from your script in that amount of time. And make sure you put this, the ping at the very end of the script, not at the beginning, because if it fails, you know, after the script starts, that doesn't help you because healthchecks.io will show it as green, as good because it ran. You want that last thing to be the healthchecks.io ping or whatever they call it. And make sure that you have it uh, check the return code. And if it's a failure, that it's um, going to exit, not get to the point where it alerts healthchecks.io. You want the script to abort. So that way it doesn't alert anything. And then you'll get that alert that it didn't run. And you get a certain number of checks for free. I can't remember. But if it's important, make sure you use something like that because we're human. We will forget. Like if that cron job, and I've done this, I've had this happen, starts to fail and you're not regularly auditing that, then guess what? It's silently failing. And that's why yep. I kind of, I don't really like the bash script thing, but with health, healthchecks.io, I think that makes it more reliable because it'll alert you if they don't receive anything from that script. And that's very important. Yeah, that's an important aspect whenever you're uh, <laughs> the only, and if you have anything you set up that you rely on, um, it's so often, and we've run into this so many times when we take over IT, we we don't have anything in place that's automated that's also not monitored to make sure that automation is doing what it is. And then at some level, a human interacts with it. And then at some other level, you do your DR testing and you make sure you implicitly make sure that file's there and can be restored. So yeah, me and Jay actually, uh, we, we had a whole, just we talked about our jobs in the enterprise space and all the different levels we have to go through uh, to ensure these things are all happening at our at our jobs and the processes yep. we put in place for it. So this is a very frequent topic um, and it's less technical. It's more just making sure you have methodologies in place and documented processes. It might be worth an episode in the future, though, because I, I feel like a lot of what we discussed off camera would actually translate very well to home lab because I, I brought up the fact that, you know, I've had clients that had like, you know, no tens of thousands of files and, you know, some are corrupted and some, you know, most are fine to the point where the client signed off and everything, everything looks perfect. Thank you. And then, you know, a week later, we can't view these files for some reason they were gone, um, which is horrible. But then again, you know, if you're enterprise or even home lab, for example, you're not going, to, if you have like 10,000 photos, are you wanting to like, you know, regularly open every single one of them and make sure they're not corrupted. Who has time for that, right? So there's there's some real challenges when it comes to um, keeping your data safe from things like bit rot that um, sounds easy, but isn't always easy. So that could be something we could talk about later. Yes, absolutely. All right. Um, the next question is about... Um, well, first, I want to comment. I like what they have running in here because it sounds yeah, like they actually got running. As we talked about, hey, you talked about some of the things in your lab. They got a TrueNAS core system, Plex server. Uh, they also have, and it's something that's on my to-do list. I've just been really busy and have time to look at it. Um, but they're using a tool we talked about called uh, Shinobi. And it's, I've not oh, yeah, used heard of that. Isn't that for cameras? Yes. It's an open source CCTV system. I've, I've seen people comment on before, and this was my impression, uh, is that it, it's a cool home lab project. It's not ready for commercial production 
um, and it also breaks occasionally with updates. Uh, and all the feedback we've gotten here of from people that have tried it have told me the same thing, which is puts it down on my list of things I'm going to try. But for those you want to play with it, it is there um, out there. But the question is, using things like currently their solution is to get to their desktops. You want to get to the UI of a system. And they were talking about using um, the Google one. Now, the, the Google one's not bad. Google offers a free remote desktop tool that works through Google Chrome. Uh, it, it's probably the most recommended. I've done a couple of videos on it, free one out mm. there for people looking for something like that. It's it's done through Google. It's secured through Google. It's a little app and it's tied to Chrome and it's tied to your Google account to allow you to log in. I think that's kind of cool because it doesn't require you to do any port forwards. It doesn't require you to do any special weird software installs. Um, and it's just really simple for taking care of being able to remotely access things. But uh, if you're looking for something a lot better, I've done a couple of videos on X2Go. So for managing your Linux yep. desktops remotely, X2Go is solid because it's not just that you can see the screen. X2Go does things way more advanced. So yeah, cool, we can see the screen. There's the basic functionality. Let's talk about application, uh, uh, remote application projection. You can actually run an application on a remote server, but bring it locally as if it interacts locally like the application is running on your system. Uh, this is some really cool features I covered in it. I actually, for a little while, was trying it. It was a little tricky to get the uh, the level of synchronization I needed for Caden Live when I was doing some editing, but I did confirm you could get Caden Live to work over X2Go. So physically yeah. running on a server, but ported all the way to my screen. There was always just these weird little quirks when it came to timing. You know, of course, yeah, you showed me that, and I was so blown away by it that I immediately put it in, into use at that time. That was back when I was using Caden Live. So, um, and that's just an example of some of the clever things you can do, if I do say so myself. I yeah. had a sync thing at the time that was syncing the, the video footage and uh, B-roll things for all my videos, and it was syncing that folder, the, my working folder for editing, to a server that had like, I don't know how many cores, like 40-something, and that server was completely headless. It had X2Go on it. It had Caden Live installed, and I was just advertising Caden Live through X2Go, and I could literally, after I edit the video on my computer, because you don't want to edit through X2Go because there's going to be some lag, but after it's edited and the file syncs over there, I just open up the same project file on Caden Live through a web browser, hit the render button, and this, the server is just going to go nuts. The fans are going to go crazy. And then since a the folder is synced, when it's done exporting the video, it's synced back to my computer and I upload it. And it's just one of the many reasons, you things that you could do in X2Go. If you don't want to see the whole desktop, you can actually just have one app or whatever to be accessible that way, which is really great. Yeah. So the and the next thing you can do in X2Go that's even cooler is you can have multiple users logged in and it creates essentially like an, an RDP session for each user. Or an R, I think Windows would refer to it for those of you familiar with the Windows world, like RDS sessions. So each person has their own little environment and they can run multiple environments on there. It's it, There's some really clever things you could do. It's a really advanced project, um, well integrated. There's still some quirkiness with it. So before I oversell it, I will admit, um, I believe it works best with the Mate interface. It doesn't work very well with Pop! OS. Uh, and there's some things right. you have to do that I do cover in there is it, it doesn't like some of the more modern, newest versions of GNOME. It's just not 
the most gnome friendly thing. So you end up using different desktop environments, but that's not a big deal. Right. Uh, actually, one of the things I do cover that's a clever use of X2Go is using it for Kali Linux as well, because you can load Kali Linux on a bare metal machine somewhere or even a Raspberry Pi. And uh, then you can use X2Go to get to the screen for it to kick off jobs and be able to use a UI uh, remotely. And it, it does traverse well over the internet, over a VPN. Um, it's running over the SSH port generally. So uh, as long as you're, that's generally how the security is handled on there. So it's uh, definitely a flexible option. For Windows machines though, I'm less certain there's... Um, there's another, there's some tooling out there. I, I just don't know it very well because uh, VNC or, is what a lot of people talk about, but there's always, uh, I don't know. I, I often feel- Connecting to a easy. Windows machine, you mean? Or yeah. um, I would I would recommend Ramina for that. No, no, no. It's oh. uh, well, That's one way. Yeah, using Ramina, that's one way. You're using the native RDP inside of Windows. That's actually not a bad option. Um, the commercial tools we use are super nice, uh, but they're expensive. So they aren't always- you know, there's subscription fee tools that we use commercially in business to do it. So that's how we're doing it commercially uh, for the home users. There's a couple of free RDP systems out there. I've just never tested them and I'm not 100% on how the how good the security is on it. That's why I'm like hesitant to recommend ones, especially because there's not much in the open source realm that manages Windows like that. Not fully open source. Some of them have like partial open source and things right. like that. But if you're if you use RDP on Windows, on the other hand, that's great. That, that solves the problem uh, because RDP, well, it's built into Windows, so you have really good support. Now, you're actually, with RDP, it's a little confusing because you're not exactly just sharing the desktop simultaneously, but that maybe isn't your use case. You just want to get to your desktop, and RDP is a solution for that because when you RDP into, like, a Windows 10 machine, um, it's going to lock out the local interface. But maybe that's the ideal situation for you, and that's what you want. So right. that's what it comes down to. But RDP does work really well. Yeah, I would I would say on my end, um, the reason why I don't cover RDP and VNC on my channel, this is just personal opinion, by the way. Um, I think RDP and VNC are just terrible solutions, and I that's why I don't cover them because I think like X2Go when it comes to Linux has pretty much defeated RDP and VNC in every way imaginable in terms of every category, speed, ease of access. Um, VNC is so annoying to work with, and there's so many quirks that it just yes. becomes a frustrating thing to deal with. RDP works exceptionally well on Windows because, like you said, it's a native it's natively technology. integrated. Um, but then I'm also nervous about using RDP or a Microsoft-centric tool for this purpose because, yes, they love Linux right now. Will they forever? We don't know. I'm, I'm not trying to be critical on Microsoft. I'm just literally saying I don't know. I have no idea. So. Of course, I'm going to go towards X2Go because that's going to be the safer bet. And when it comes to um, connecting to a Windows machine via RDP from your Linux workstation, that's Ramina, in my opinion, because that's a really awesome tool that has like a bunch of different remote desktop protocols built right into it. Like SSH, you could use that. You could use RDP. I think there's a VNC client in there, if I'm not mistaken. I can't remember what else is in there, but it's like the Swiss army knife of, of connecting to things. So Ramina is an awesome tool for that. But if you're connecting Linux to Linux, it's X to go. Now, what's interesting to me, if I'm not mistaken, I think GNOME actually built in RDP support in one of the newer versions. And I'm thinking, why? Why RDP and not something like X to go or something that's more you know friendly to the um, Linux ecosystem? But that must mean that there's a case to be made there that I could be wrong and I'll admit that I'm wrong if I am. But 
RDP, I just don't really care for that. Um, also, when it comes to GNOME, it's basically a problem in every remote desktop solution in existence today, or virtualization, anything that's not using GNOME on your actual computer, GNOME is going to run slow otherwise, because it uses the GPU, it needs some acceleration. Mind you, it doesn't need much. You could have an older computer that has a GPU, and that's going to be fine. But in virtualization, you know, you, you won't have a GPU. You might have a little bit of a GPU. That's kind of okay, but you're going to notice lag. So I totally agree when you when you were talking about the Mate environment because that doesn't really need that. And not only that, they the, the Mate environment can detect when it's being run in a remote session and adjust itself accordingly. Like they thought about this. It's not that GNOME didn't think about this. I think it's just more of a conflict of interest with what GNOME is and using it in a virtualization platform or remote desktop platform, it's not really what GNOME was built for. Yes, they want it to work well everywhere. Some patches have been um, put in to make it work better and it's getting better all the time, but it's just not better enough yet. And at this rate, it's gonna take years. So I would just think of GNOME as the thing to use when you're not doing remote desktops and you're only using something local. But any anytime I'm connecting to something remotely and I want to set up a, a remote desktop on Linux, it's going to be Mate every time. Yeah. Now, so I can answer another question because I didn't <laughs> see it come up there. Um, people are asking about the uh, guacamole, the Apache guacamole project. Well, Apache guacamole is an intermediary. And what I mean mm -hmm. by that is you can set up Apache guacamole and it serves up a really cool HTML5 interface to get to the things you want to get to it bridges so you from a perspective of i have my windows box cool i need to get to it how do i get to it well i'm going to set up apache guacamole on another server and then i'm going to take apache guacamole and put in all the rdp credentials so it can talk to that server then i access that server by going to apache guacamole which then initiates the connection back to that server but what i mean by intermediary is that it is not directly connected to a server. You're connecting each time to Apache Guacamole by which you can tie other servers to it, but you're still reliant on the RDP being available. And if you're a Windows 10 home, not pro user, for example, uh, the RDP is uh, not available, I believe by default on home still. Um, it's only available in the pro versions of Windows. So you're, it comes back to you're still doing it. And Apache Guacamole can also right. connect to VNC. It can also connect to some of the other protocols. So it's a different layer. It, it has a different use case uh, as opposed to direct connecting. When we mentioned things like the uh, on Linux, the Ramia remote desktop tool, that is a remote access tool that directly connects probably most likely over like a VPN to something that you have RDP or VNC uh, open on. Yep. Yeah, and some people are saying uh, Guacamole can be a pain to configure. Yeah, it's it's an extra layer. And if you're only going to one computer or two computers, maybe it's worth it, maybe it's not. Um, I think it's a fun learning project, but I, I don't use it myself. I don't really have a use case for it. Um, doesn't mean you don't. And right. uh, there's a few people who have done some videos on it. So it's a, it's a cool project, don't get me wrong. Yep, it really is, yeah. There, there's a bunch of different things out there you can run that can solve anything you want to solve. Someone's probably yep. thought of it, and they probably have it on GitHub right now. Yep. So All right. one thing I wanted to kind of mention, we have someone write in, and um, this is a description of their home lab. And, and basically, you know, we're kind of running a little over, but I wanted to, yep. um, I'll keep this short as much as I can. Um, Intel NUCs appear to be highly central here, and that's a 
I just want to mention that because you'd be surprised how far you can get on an Intel NUC. They're low power, low noise. They're just great. Um, you might not have as much RAM as you'd have on a, you know, off-lease Dell server from eBay, but you might not need that, especially, you know, if you don't run VMs. For example, if you have an Intel NUC with four gigs of RAM, I mean, you might be able to run one VM on there. So you probably don't want to load Proxmox on something like that. Or actually you could because you could just run containers instead, which have smaller a smaller footprint. You could really get a lot out of that. For the longest time, I was running a container server that had just four gigs of RAM. And that at one point held everything because containers allowed me to really, um, you know, basically reduce the footprint on that. So um, definitely definitely want to get a, give a thumbs up on the comment in regards to that. Um, and did you see, I mean, there's a lot of things to unpack here that I really wish, and, and maybe we could go over this person's home lab again, because I don't want to like sell anyone short, but, yeah. um, the NUC thing really stood out. Was there any particular things there that stood out for you? I, I do laugh, um, because this happens all the time. It says for the main router, I got rid of my USG a few months ago because it was awful <laughs> and I'm not running PF sense on, um, a passively cool box. So that's very cool. Mm -hmm. Um, to, running the running a series of they have three Synology NASes, which is kind yeah. of cool. So you got lots of data replicated, um, and plus data replicated to the Google Cloud. So another backup place. Yeah, this is um I like this, but the NUC definitely really cool for you know people building small home labs. Uh, and actually, one of the uh, kind of related to this, there's the NUC, and there's also the Protect Tele boxes. I think I'm saying their name right. Um, XCPNG did um, did a demo of setting up a handful of those because they're relatively expensive. They're all passively cooled and relatively expensive. I say relative because it's relative to whether or not you think they're expensive. But a few of those set up in a passively cooled um, system makes very nice, fits on your desk, quiet because there's no moving parts and fans. Um, and each one of these has a series of network cards. So you can build some cool things, including loading a hypervisor on them. Uh, so they mentioned they were looking at XCPNG. These are kind of just kind of great learning. Are they fast? Are they incredible for workloads? No. But is your homeland workload really that intensive? Uh, is it about learning uh, or is it about building the, the awesome, I get these incredible performance numbers type systems? So balance that out when you're thinking about it, because one of the most important things is uh, just being able to have the knowledge of how all these things operate. Even if it operates a little slower, it's uh there's still great choices to do look at these things like the NUX or these uh protect tele solid state boxes. All right, there, there's no shortage of these smaller computers. You know, I, I kind of wish I could show myself when I was first starting in computers and just go to past me and say, check out this Intel NUC. This little tiny thing is like 10 times more powerful than your current desktop. <laughs> It's just so amazing how far we've come and how things are shrinking down to the point where I predict that um, when it comes to desktops in the future, every single one of them are, are going to be small like that, with the only exception being the uh, gamers' desktops or the big GPUs and things like that. Those are going to be like the only things that are huge. But if you're not playing games and you're just a casual user, you'll probably have something like a NUC if you're going to have a desktop or, or whatever the equivalent is at that time. It's just amazing and the raspberry pi i mean yeah they're expensive right now but i mean even those are more powerful by far than my first computer yeah um two quick questions about unify that are uh inside here so we can answer some of the live viewers questions one of them is does the unify dream machine pro se support link aggregation i don't know i'd have to read the specs i don't have a dream machine pro se uh the second one does tom have a video on 
mesh versus AP. It's not mesh versus AP. First, don't mesh it unless you absolutely have to. But yes, I do have content on that topic. You always want your APs whenever possible to be all hardlined, not mesh to each other. Each time you add a mesh, you one, reduce speed, you two, you add latency. So you only in the circumstances that you need to have it because there's simply no way to get a wire over there would you use a mesh system to extend the range of an AP. We have done it. We have done it commercially. Um, very limited. We had a library. There was power on one side of the library. The library is built in the 50s. It's a beautiful Art Deco building. There is no way without uh, tearing up the floor in the library, which the library was not fond of, uh, to get to the one wing of the library. We had Wi-Fi. They have electricity there. That's it. So we used a mesh. That's our exception because it was the only way to get access to that area of the library. Everything else is hardlined in. And if you're doing home, you can run into some of those problems too, where you just can't get into a wall to run a wire. So uh, if you have to use a mesh, Unify does support mesh interfacing. I don't, would you agree with this statement I'm about to make? I would kind of rather see people use a really good, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna like really focus on that, a really good power line adapter that has some really good throughput. And then just have your access point connect to that. Yes, you'll still have some latency. It's not preferred and you're going to drop a ton of packets and you're not even going to get the full speed out of the access point. But I would argue it's probably maybe not a lot better than mesh, but it's probably going to be better. It might You might not get nearly the throughput of your internet connection, but you'll get something in that case. Would, would you agree with that? Would Have you tried that out? You want to wait. Well, so you get a power line adapter and yeah. you, you know that connects two points. You have your access point connect to a power line adapter somewhere else, with one being your switch going into it, the other end is out to the um access point. And and keep in mind, like for example, a, a two gigabit power line adapter, you're probably gonna get 150 megabits out of it. So keep that in mind. The the speed drops considerably, but I I just don't like meshing. So I'm almost inclined to go that direction before I go with meshing because at least it's hardwired. And if it's limiting your speed, that does suck. But if that makes or breaks your ability to have Wi-Fi somewhere, it might be something to consider. Right. And yeah, it's it's a toss-up. Unify does a pretty good job with their backhaul, but it's always it, there's always trade-offs with it when you're not doing a home run back from each um, Wi-Fi to... Right. The switch. Think about this. And this is the perspective I try to give a lot of people. It's in think about this from an engineering standpoint. We have the protocol that runs across Ethernet. We have to make a conversion of that protocol to get it into Wi-Fi. That's the Wi-Fi protocol. So we've taken one standard, we've muxed it into another standard. Hmm. Then it has to go to your device where it comes back to be back to the other standard. So anytime you add those complexities of conversion to and conversion back, there is latency and potential for problems added. Uh, you're adding complexity to it. So when you add mesh, now you're taking, because by the way, the mesh doesn't repeat a wireless signal. That's not what's happening. It is taking the signal from ethernet, converting it to wireless. Then it hits the uh, backhaul part where it also has to be converted back and over to the next mesh, over to the next mesh. Each one converts back before it transmits. It's not just grabbing the signal and going, take signal here, reply over here. That's not how that works. It actually goes through for each hop. That's why there's such a diminishing return over the hops. By the mm -hmm. way, mesh is not roaming. That is also, I have a roaming video and I probably should make a new one. Um, 
because I want to go in more depth on it, but basically I want to title it. Mesh is not roaming because that's right. Those are two different things that people talk about. They make this assumption. They need to be meshed together to roam from point to point. I have a video where I talk about roaming. If you just look for roaming, I've talked about it. Uh, there's plenty of comments on it for people who say, I just didn't go deep enough. And I said, yeah, I could have went deeper. I got to figure out the balance of, you know, how deep do we go into how the roaming protocols work? Um, I went, far enough but at some point the video has to be um watchable so but maybe yeah. someone will watch a deeper yeah. engineering video on it i don't know it, it's always a hard time to balance of just how deep do i go because my zfs is a cow video has a lot of views and i went deep on that one so <laughs> it, you know it's hit or miss when it yeah. comes to these topics it really is like i could do a deep dive on something that i, I think is going to go over well and no one no one really seems to care and then Something else I don't think is going to, you know, catch on and everyone loves it. So you never know. Just just throw some content out there and see what sticks, I guess. Yep. And I see people talking about the roaming. The challenge with the roaming, and I cover this in the video, so too long, didn't watch. The problem is mostly the devices, not the access points. Modern access points understand roaming well. Uh, devices, they kind of leave the parameters up to the device manufacturers. And uh, in the case of IoT device manufacturers, um, I don't think a lot of effort was put forth. <laughs> we'll just say that. So you run wow. into these uh, problems where they just get stuck to certain APs. Now, if the, if the IoT device is a fixed point, um, it's easier to deal with. But when it's not a fixed point or it, it straddles the uh, distance between two devices, that can be a problem. Older phones, especially some of the cheaper ones, were more notorious for being stuck on the further away device. So they first latch on to the device they find. And even though you've wandered past where you walked in the building, you're further away from that AP and when you walked in the building and you sat down at a desk where there's one above your head, sometimes the phone goes, you know what I'm going to do? I like that first one I found and I don't feel like I should uh, go to this one that's closer. And it's not a problem with the APs, but this is where you can get into some of the tuning of the APs. And Jay knows all about setting minimum RSSIs to get things to connect to the oh, right devices. Oh, yes, I do. I've been through a whole spiel of trying to make Wi-Fi sane within my household and office. And I feel like I, I got it perfect for me right now. Like I have zero complaints, literally. But um, it's one of those things that takes a little bit of time to research the best place to put your APs. How far away from each other can they be? How many do you need? things like that. Which ones do you go with? Because there's going to be uh, feature discrepancies between them. And one of one of one thing I ran into is, you know, unlike models was a problem, which it really technically should not be. There's no reason why having like a Wi-Fi 6 device here and, you know, it's not Wi-Fi 6 somewhere else should be a problem because it's backwards compatible. But it was, at least I think it was because everything's fine now. But there's just all these different things. Wi-Fi is hard. That's really the only thing I could say. Well, it, it just, yeah. Dealing with wireless signals going through the air, um, I on the scale of humanity, wires have been around longer by a lot. So radio right. frequencies and pushing them over there. It's not that it's not a understood science. It's just a really complicated one. Uh, right. And every environment being different. RF environments are notoriously tricky. And as we stick more and more things that put RF frequency in into the airwaves around us like whose idea was it to start using 2.4 because by the way that's a lot of the area where your microwave is in and other things that make rf noise so these there's all kinds of challenges you can have uh yeah well, is sorry bit of an audio lag there sorry about that i was just gonna say that insult to injury when 
Wi-Fi was gaining prominence, 2.4 gigahertz wireless phones were probably, I'm guessing, something like 10 times more common or, or somewhere around there than they are today. Because, I mean, who has a hardline phone anymore? But back then, everybody did. And cordless phones are really popular, so they chose the same. Anyway, I digress. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's yeah. because it's an unlicensed band, there's just a lot of noise in it. And uh, don't you jump in the topic of Wi-Fi deauthorization and ways you can just be highly disruptive with Wi-Fi when you go places? Um, yeah, that's the thing. You can you can build pocket-based Wi-Fi uh, deauthors that just send out signals in there and uh, force everyone to disconnect from Wi-Fi. There's it can be really messy uh, at times. I mean, it's less likely. Yeah. Um, there there were certain attack scenarios that that would be the precursor for uh, because they would try when there was a flaw in the way they would negotiate. If you got enough renegotiation packets, there was a way to uh, extrapolate data that most of that's been patched, hopefully, depending on what you're using, of course, whether or not there's patches available. But yeah, Wi-Fi is a um, everyone wants this, the, the number that's on the box that marketing claimed. I live in the real world, not the sales and marketing world. So. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I wonder if the sales and marketing people have to use the thing they're selling. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and then someone. What about what about five gigahertz? Uh, five gigahertz. The the nature of going up in the gigahertz band is it doesn't go through things as well. So while it does uh, have less noise, it has great uh, a lot of distance restrictions essentially on a five gigahertz. You're not going to be able to go through as many things. You're not going to have the same distance, but under shorter distances, which is good for people like Unify who sell lots of access points. And this is why we'll do a higher density solution. Um, it's just, you go, that's the solution. Just put more of them on there. Um, so you can do it. I, you know, it fell off the map, uh, not to digress too much, but, <laughs> uh, the, um, light emitting uh, was really promising for a while. A few people had built some really cool proofs of concept where they could do line of sight with light. Now, it was outside, I believe, the visible wavelength that we can see, but they were able to put light beacons. And as long as your laptop was in view of these light beacons, and they could put a lot of them out there because no interference because the beams are so focused, and then you could have connectivity over light beams. I still think that's a promising technology. Uh, it seemed like they there there comes in my head from an engineering thinking standpoint, but not necessarily knowing the details of how scalable it is. I think that's a clever idea. If you could build some type of omnidirectional beacon in a ceiling, and as long as you have a device that has a surface exposed on it, like the top of a laptop lid, like the top edge, it was a rather small part. You can find some demos of people who engineered this. Um, I think that's a clever way to do it because you can send a lot of data over light. Uh, the downside is the right. moment a shadow hits it or something, you slide your laptop under the cubicle with one of those little overhead things, it loses its line of sight to the beam and you have a new problem. But the concept's there. And I think there might be ways to mitigate and solve it if we can get it everywhere. I don't know. Li-Fi, that's what it was called. Yeah, I, you know, I, something that's always been interesting to me, we can send a satellite uh, New Horizons to Pluto, which is about 2.6 billion miles away and get high definition pictures back from there but we could barely facilitate Wi-Fi to our couch. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of where we are today. But you know, it, it we're getting there, I guess, eventually. Yeah. All right. Well, we've rambled on enough for the show. Please send us your Q and A so we can do more of these shows. This was definitely a fun live stream. I love having all of you here, and <laughs> uh, looking forward to more Q and A. Um, yeah, I think that's about it. Jake, anything else? 
I have a ton, but I, I think we're about out of time. So that's how I look at it too. So yep. all right. See everyone next time. And thanks for joining us. See you later.